Good morning. Wow. I missed you. I missed you. It feels like even if I'm gone a little bit, it feels like a whole real long time. And, and I know that I left you in good hands. I mean, Pastor Matt, Pastor Ryan, Bishop Parnell, they did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. I got a chance to hang out with Bishop this week and he talks about how much he feels loved here and how much, uh, he feels like this is his home and that, uh, it's fun for him to be here and spend time with you and, and minister to you and care for you. And I heard that he did the closing singing over you. Man, that's cool, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want me doing that. All right. All right. I grew up in heavy metal, so it's just a totally different, different thing when I sing over you. So, uh, anyway, I'll tell you what, I need you to take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and we can dive in. We're going to need all our time together. We are in part 72 of our Being Jesus series and I entitled today's message, The Beginning of the End, which sounds absolutely not encouraging. Anyway, I, I do want to, you'll understand as we kind of get through this, Jesus is He's going to go into one of the longest teaching elements that is recorded. So we have like a Sermon on the Mount. Well, this is called the Olivet Discourse. And it's some of his teaching in the temple that we've been studying. And it's some that he teaches on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. But it's this longer period where Jesus is kind of wrapping up his earthly life. And he's kind of dumping out all the information to the kids so that they can take off without him. And then he's going to step out. We are in the last week of Jesus's life here on earth. And so there's a lot he needs to say, so a lot of that is written down. But I want to begin with an Old Testament story uh, to just kind of tie us in a little bit to where I feel like maybe my heart is on this passage. In Exodus 15, it tells this little story that right after Israel had gone through the Red Sea incident, which you all know the Red Sea incident, right? You know, they were in bondage to uh, Egypt for over 400 years, God then brings them out. That's the, the plagues and Passovers from that, right? And then as they go out, they get stuck right in front of a, uh, a kind of an ocean blockade. And then God moves the walls of water. They walk through. Y'all know that story. Yeah. Well, that was a pretty traumatic event. That was pretty scary for them. And then it was pretty awesome once they, they saw the whole water moving thing. That was awesome. And then God seemed bigger. Well, they're three days into the desert. They don't know where they're going. But when they walk into the desert, they realize there's no water. Now, I know I've been hungry. I have never gone thirsty like over a day. They're three days into it and there's no water. You have approximately between 600,000 to a million people walking with you and there's no water. Now that becomes challenging, does it not? Yes. So they complain to Moses. And what I love about Moses' leadership, which I have tried to implement into my life uh, within the last couple of years, is that when, when people complain to him, he had this attitude of, man, I'm just doing what God said. And he goes and complains to God, right? So I thought, oh, that's a cool idea. Someone dumps it on you. You go and dump it on God and say, hey, God, they're mad at me. And then God says, yeah, 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 I got it. So they come upon some water. 
Now you got to imagine they're thinking, yeah, finally, we're not going to die of thirst. And they all run to the water and it's undrinkable. Now that just sounds like a cruel trick. You know what I mean? It's kind of, hey, a bunch of water, can't drink any of it. That's messed up. And so you're like, God, what are you doing? I mean, it's jerking us around and we just came through this traumatic incident. Now all of a sudden we can't drink the water, but it's right there in front of you. I mean, you you hear these stories about people that are alive on the, the ocean for a little while, but they're so thirsty, they start drinking the salt water and then that doesn't work with their body, right? Okay, so this is what we got going on. So they complain again and they're like, Moses, you're killing us, man. Your leadership's dismal, right? Here we go again. And he's like, God, they're mad at me again. And God says, well, I actually have a solution for you. And he's like, all right, what do we got? What do we got? Is there more water? No, we're going to change this water. What do you mean going to change this water? Well, what I want you to do is I want you to drag a tree into it. I'm sorry, what's that? You want me to, <laughs> you want me to what? Uh, is this a purification process? How does this work? Uh, no, 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 just drag a tree into it. Why? I'm not explaining that to you right now drag the stupid tree into the water and it's going to make the water better. Really? Yeah. Trust me on this one. So he drags it into the water and it's made sweet instantaneously. And they're all able to drink and it leads them to their next refreshment was that there was an oasis not too far away. They weren't going to make it there. So God's beautiful, miraculous provision carried them on to where they could be taken care of. Isn't that a cool story? What does that have anything to do with us? When you take a bitter situation and you take a cross like the tree that Jesus was hung on and you drag it into the situation, it changes it. When you take the gospel, when you take the power of God and you move it into a bitter situation, it is made sweet. I don't know where you are all at. I would love to get a little read on you that that maybe some of you have walked through difficult seasons, but now God has made it sweet. Maybe you're in a time of refreshment. Maybe you're in a time where you're like, dang, things are going okay for me, you know? And it seems like I've just had some blessings in my life. I would love to see where you're at. Can you just raise your hand if you're in a season of sweetness? Anybody in a season of sweetness right now? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, here's what we need to do. When you are in that season, I want you to praise God for it. I want you to say, man, it's not always like this. So I'm feeling good about right now. And all the rest of us need to realize that if God has them in a season of sweetness, then he can also bring us someday to a season of sweetness. And so I would like to just give a round of applause to God for their sweetness. Amen. Yeah. God is good. And I want, I don't want you to feel bad about this time of sweetness. I don't want you to feel guilty about that. Oh, well, my neighbor's suffering. Yeah, I get it, but you're not right now. And it's okay to say, God, I feel so blessed. I feel like you've been so good to me. It's so wonderful to praise during those times. That's why he made it sweet. He wanted your praise. He wanted your, your glory about him. And so instead of going, man, I probably shouldn't feel this way. You know, there's other people suffering. And there's... Okay, I get it. I'm not saying that you become hard-hearted. What I'm saying is you become praise-filled. You know what I mean? And so those are the times that we lift it up to God. Now, not all of us are in that place. 
some of us feel like we just got out of one out of the what the frying pan and and now we're in the fire and it's like really lord i thought i just got out of one thing and now i'm in another thing and i feel like i am in a bitter situation is there any of you right now that feel like you're in a a bitter season anyone with me on that one my hand's going up on that one i'm in a bitter season right now yeah anybody all right now here's what i want to encourage you about god knew the water was bitter god knew where he was leading them God knew what he was taking them through. Do you remember that in Psalm 23, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It didn't say we're camping there. It didn't say we're living there. It didn't say that that's the end of the story. It says we're going through because the tablelands and why the shepherd took you that route in the first place is that there is goodness on the other side. He is going to lead you through this bitter time. And the way that we're going to change our perspective in this bitter time is to drag the gospel into it. What does the gospel really mean? It means that you can have a joy that is far greater than your circumstance. It means that even though right now I get it out of the frying pan, into the fire, out of the Red Sea, into bitter water, I know you feel like, man, I'm being led down a messed up road. But God is a good shepherd. He knows where he's taking you. And sometimes he leads us in bitter times so that he can make it sweet and the praise will rise. Because if he continues to just let you have sweet water, It just becomes normal and there's no more praise. Sometimes God's got to change it up a little bit to engage the heart to praise rightly. Because think about all the things that we are not currently praising him about. I mean, if you can imagine that right now in this hot summer time, that every weekend, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, we're out there doing a makeshift church. We're trying to put a cover up. It's a hot tent. There's no air conditioning. And we're doing, and then one day we get to walk into this place. We would have so much praise, so much joy. We'd be like, man, look at this chair. It's so cushy, right? I mean, we would be out there going, oh, it feels so good to be indoors and blah, blah, blah. But every weekend we walk into this place and there's no praise for the chairs. There's no praise for the climate. There's no praise for the lighting. Why? Because we're too used to it. And so sometimes God allows us to walk into the bitter that he might make it sweet so that the praise would emanate. You know what I'm talking about? And so maybe that's what's going on with us. Now, I don't know that for sure, but I certainly know that in my life, what I need more of right now is a change in perspective. Get my head out of me and begin to get it into Jesus and start allowing him to renew my mind. And so, man... Just coming back, you know, from vacation time, I spent some time alone. Man, alone, I'm not awesome. You know, up in my head, you know what I'm saying? Where you're just like, woo, you keep running scenarios over and over and over. And so just walking in, getting into God's word, being, you know, doing all the prep and then seeing your smiling faces and all that just allows God to minister to me. And it changes my heart because the cross has affected you. That's why you're here. And your cross with Jesus has affected me. And so it's bringing sweetness into a bitter situation that I might be different. I want to tell you that, unfortunately, 
sometimes there's a reverse process to all of this. And sometimes we observe it in our nation where we have had sweetness, but we want to keep taking the cross out of it. And it starts getting more bitter. And I just need us to understand that there is a consequence to the removal of Jesus from situations. Sometimes we're all fired up. We grew up Christian. We, we felt good. We feel like our lives were really on target and everything was blessing. And so we decided to just give up that whole church thing. We decided to kind of take a break from that whole Bible reading thing. We decided not to do as much of that prayer thing because actually we're doing really, really good and we don't feel desperate for God anymore. And over the years, we begin to find it get more and more bitter. And we wonder what happened to us. You cannot extract out Jesus and still have the fun. I just need you to know that. Sometimes we think that Jesus is wrecking the fun, but he's actually the only satisfaction in your life right now. And so when we begin to extract him from situations in our lives, in our families, in our minds, in our country, in our state, whatever it is, when we begin to pull him out of those things, it starts getting bitter over time. And then we look around and go, man, why is everything so messed up? You can't take Jesus out of it and still have the joy. It's just not going to work. And so whatever it is in our lives, please, let's make sure that we are consistent with having a diet where we are constantly feeding on who Jesus is, the word of God, making sure that we're saying, yes, God, maybe that's not the way I want to do it. Maybe, Lord, that's uncomfortable. Maybe that's something that is that is tense for me right now, or or maybe that's not a choice that I want to make. But God, if you tell me that's the way it needs to go, I want to go that way because there is sweetness around the corner to all of God's decisions. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. If you take Jesus out of the equation, there is no peace. So where we have agitation, we likely have a Jesus problem. And I think that unfortunately we have some of that. All right. So let's dive into this. It's going to be a combo passage. We're doing Matthew, Mark, and Luke combined together today. And Jesus is still teaching, and he's going to go from the temple, have a conversation, and have that up on the Mount of Olives, which is 100 feet higher. So it's a super cool view when you're on the top of the Mount of Olives to look down into Jerusalem to have a conversation about the temple. So this is how it begins. It starts like this. Jesus left the temple and was going away. This is perhaps Wednesday of the last week of his life. And as he came out of the temple where he was teaching each day, one of his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And they said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful noble stones, what wonderful buildings. And he commented how it was adorned with offerings. All right, why are we having this conversation? Is it really that shocking for an ancient Jew at this time to go, a temple, what? Right? I mean, they all know there's a temple. But hold up. Maybe we're having this conversation because a lot of these guys are from the north. Maybe they're all fishermen or tax collectors or they're, you know, working in vineyards or they're shepherds. If you're in the north, you don't hang out by Jerusalem. Maybe they're not city boys. 
Maybe they're coming in and going, man, I know you all are maybe used to this. This is crazy. Look how beautiful this place is. Or maybe they were paying attention when Jesus approaching Jerusalem broke down in tears and began weeping and said one of the weirdest lines they had ever heard. He says about Jerusalem, you will be left desolate. Oh man, maybe that's just hanging in their heart. And they're like, what? Wait, what? What do you mean desolate? Like the temple's going to be... Nobody's messing with it. The temple is the very heart of our religious center. This place is massive. It's incredible. It's beautiful. It was built by a leader connected to Rome. Oh, it's immovable. Maybe that's what they were thinking. I don't know. But they start commenting on the temple. Do you know anything about the temple? About how it got there? You know, obviously I'm a history buff, right? And so, so I started looking at kind of the history of this. In the beginning, it started out with a little tent where Moses would hang out with God. And then they kind of made it into this mobile, let's carry it around with us, tabernacle thing. And then one day, a guy named King David said, you know, this is messed up. We are now camped here. We're now in Jerusalem. I would love God to build you a home. I want your home better than my home. I want the glory to come to you. I want everyone to be impressed when they come and meet with you. And so I would love to build you a temple. And God said, man, that is super sweet of you. That is an awesome idea. There's no way you're going to build it. And he's like, hey, what? What do you mean? He's like, dude, come on. Come on. Y'all know what we've walked through. Okay. You are, you know how many people you've killed? All right. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. I know you want to be sweet. Like, eh, it's all fun. Okay. I'm going to let your son do it. And that's going to be his blessing. You can get it ready. So he does all the designs and he gets all the materials together and all that, right? And then sure enough, Solomon comes around and in the fourth year of his reign, he, he, for seven years, he builds what his dad designed and he creates what's known as Solomon's temple. And it was beautiful. It was amazing. And so that was kind of the, the pinnacle thing of their whole area. And everybody kind of knew that that's the Jewish thing. And that's where God dwells, right? Isn't that what the temple was? That they had that holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? And they're like, wow. And, and all that, the priests would go in there and it was super important and holy. And you don't touch this and you don't touch that. All right. Well, along the way, that temple, uh, about 600 B.C., the nation started falling apart and some guy had a message on the temple. His name was Jeremiah. Anybody remember the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah? He comes by and he's like, yeah, that's going to get destroyed. Well, that's not a very popular thing to say. So everyone, yeah, I hate that prophet. He's stupid. So anyway, it fell to the Babylonians in 586 BC after approximately 400 years of standing. And when it got knocked down and messed up and the whole city got torn down, all of a sudden, a Persian king by the name of King Cyrus shows up. He actually gives them money and tells them they can go back and start rebuilding their temple. That's known as Zerubbabel's temple. It's the refashioning of it. When they got done with that one, the Bible says the people wept. Why? Because they're looking at it and going, dang, this is inferior to what we had before. This is stupid. This is terrible. Yeah, we got it. It's functional. Cool. We get to hang out with God. But it's kind of ugly. 
It's just not. It's not fancy. It's not okay. Yeah, we're gonna still. Ah, oh, all right. We don't know if they they beautified it over time or what happened. But that little inferior one lasted longer than the first one. It actually lasted for five hundred years. And so that was kind of a, it was about the same size. They were trying to just fix it back up. Well, then what ended up happening was that in 37 BC, a guy by the name of King Herod took control of the Palestinian area, they called it. And sure enough, right there, they decide, he decides, you know what I could do here? The Jews don't like me. I'm only partly Jewish and they don't like me and I'm not that awesome of a guy, so they probably shouldn't like me. But anyway, uh, I can kill two birds with one stone. I can make them happy and I can look awesome. This is such a great idea. I'm going to rebuild their temple and I'm going to make it bigger and badder and better than the first one. So King Herod was known for his fancy buildings. So he deconstructs and breaks down the entire temple and rebuilds it. What he wanted to do was make it huge. Well, the problem was it was on top of a small mountain. Okay, so Mount Zion or Mount Moriah, whichever time you're looking at, that was not super big and he wants to expand. How do you expand off a cliff? Right? So he tears down rubble from one side, builds up shurings and footings and expands the entire area. Now, this is what's so fascinating about it. By the time he gets done, it is twice the size of Solomon's temple. It is twice the size of the Acropolis in Athens. It is a massive monstrosity built of white stone. The upper reaches are all marble and the eastern wall is completely coated with gold so that in the morning when the sun comes up it hits that and blinds everybody it was one of the seven wonders of the world it's adorned with tapestries and beautiful gold things and gold doors and and uh he actually gave this uh a vine a beautiful gold vine that that hangs on the walls and every cluster of grapes they said was the size of a man you can imagine how massive and they're all solid gold and so this place is beautiful and crazy and the footings that they moved into place to get this thing locked down because they knew it was so heavy the the foundational stones one of which you can still see if you go over to israel right now it's right next to the wailing wall you now have a tunnel that you can walk through and you can see it i've seen it with my own eyes it's estimated they don't even know it's estimated to be 570 tons all right no one knows how they cut it or moved it. So, you know, we always go, I wonder how the pyramids were built. They don't even know how that rock was moved. It was, they were orchestrated and chiseled out so perfectly that they would fit and they needed no cementing together because they were absolutely perfect. And, and even the cornerstones on top of the foundation, those cornerstones are 75 to a hundred tons. I mean, it's just ridiculous. The amount of stuff that he put together and built this incredible monstrosity. The whole world marveled at it. So did he get credit? Yeah, that's what he wanted. Sure enough, he began that in 20 BC. The main sanctuary was in full operation within 10 years, but the total project was not complete until AD 64, way after Jesus died. What was the problem with that date? It was only six years before the entire thing was destroyed. It was only finished and complete for six years. Wow. And all that stuff got ripped off and torn down. 
Jesus said when he came into the Jewish territory, he said this phrase that freaked everybody out. He said, something greater than the temple is here. Do you remember that? Who's that? Jesus. Him. Yeah. He said, I'm greater than the temple. Why would he say that? Because what does the temple represent? But the presence of God. What if God himself is right there? He's like, I'm the temple right? Y'all don't need this temple anymore. It doesn't do the same thing that it did before. I'm right here. And then if you remember that when Jesus died, there was a curtain that covered the Holy of Holies. Now the Ark of the Covenant had already been lost. It's not back there anymore. That was an empty room, right? But, but that was still the presence of God. Do you remember what happened to that curtain when Jesus died? It was torn from the top to the bottom and God went worldwide. And now post Pentecost, we are now defined in the Bible as walking temples. You understand what I'm talking about? We are movable walking temples where God dwells. We no longer have to go to a location to worship him. We can now be wherever we're at and God is present with us in all of his power and glory for his children. Is that not amazing? Man. So I, so when they're walking around, you got to understand what they're looking at. And these guys are like, man, this place is crazy. And then Jesus says this, but Jesus said to him, you see all these great buildings, do you not? Listen up, kid, this is deep. As for these things that you see, this magnificent temple, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they're like, there's no way that's going to happen. I mean, do you see how big these rocks are? No way. In AD 70, Vespasian's son Titus, they got sick and tired of the Jews rebelling, and they just decided to smash them. He sets up an embankment and for 13 months lays siege to Jerusalem, starves them out. They actually get to the point of cannibalism. 1.1 million Jews die. I believe 97,000 of them are hauled away to captivity. The entire place is tore up. One of the ways that he did it was he put scaffolding around the temple. He put scaffolding around the city that was wooden, packed it, and his guys did this. Apparently he didn't want this, but they packed it full of flammable materials and they lit the entire thing on fire. Why? Because they wanted to burn the city and when the heat got so great, it cracked the rocks. And the rocks began to split. Problem is, what did I tell you the eastern wall was made out of? Gold. What happens when gold gets really hot? It melts. It poured down into the cracks of the rocks. Now what do they have to do? They have to split the rocks apart just to get the gold back out because there's no way they're leaving it there. And they tore every stone off the other stone until the whole place was decimated. That's called fulfillment of prophecy. You know what I'm talking about? All right. All right, there are four of you that are super impressed right now. <laughs> All the rest of you are like, when do we get to the good part? This is ridiculous. What's going on? All right. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately saying, teacher, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place of your coming and the end of the age when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay, a couple things that are really powerful right there. It says Jesus left the temple and then he went and sat on the Mount of Olives and talked about the destruction of the temple. You know why this is so important? Because in the Old Testament, when God was done with Israel for a time for their judgment, 
It says the glory of God departed from the temple, crossed the Kidron Valley, and stopped and hovered over the Mount of Olives. Now you have Jesus doing the exact same thing. He just cleansed the temple, told him, you guys, this is all bogus. We don't have it right anymore. This is messed up. And when you get done honoring God, what are you supposed to do with that? If God's not being honored, what's the point? And he said, and he left and went over and stopped over the Mount of Olives. The glory of God moved away from the temple. Now what's going to happen to it? The destruction that he's talking about, right? And then it says, the disciples said, so, so like, when's that going to happen? I mean, you just said, this temple's going to get torn down. Like, when? I mean, you're the one that recruited us. We've been going through all this crazy training, and we've been seeing miracles. And so, like, are you going to blow up the temple, and then we're going to be, like, in charge? Or how does this thing work? How's this all going to go down? And they assumed that the destruction of the temple meant the end of the world. Because in their world, that was everything. And why wouldn't you think that? If you're an Old Testament Jew and you're reading the scriptures, it looks like the Messiah comes in, everything blows up, and heaven's next. That's all it looks like. So why wouldn't you assume that? Well, they did. And that's why Jesus said, your question is a little messed up. So I've got to answer it in a couple different ways. First of all, you're asking me, when's the temple going to get destroyed? That I can tell you exactly. But you're asking when I'm coming back. That I don't know. That's the Father's going to reveal that to me. So actually, I can't give you that. I can give you signs about when it's going to happen, but I can't tell you about when it's going to happen. So this is actually what he said. Right off the bat, he said, Jesus answered them, see that you are not led astray, that no one leads you astray. Why is that important? Because he's saying, guys, I'm about to tell you information not to be cryptic, not to be weird, not to be mysterious. I'm giving you information so that you will know and not be led astray. I'm here to protect you. I'm trying to help you out on this one. So you're going to listen to it and go, I don't get it. Okay. I'm giving you as much as I can give you to try to protect you. But here's what is most important. Don't walk away from what I'm doing. Don't walk away from me. Don't, don't allow someone else to be your king. You know who I am. I need you to lock that down and don't let somebody tell you otherwise, right? Don't allow anyone to lead you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, and it's the end of the world, the time is at hand, and they will lead many astray. You do not go after them. When it says that many will come in my name, what it doesn't mean is that many will come saying, Jesus authorized me. That's actually not what they're going to be saying. It means they're going to come like he did and take his position. I'm the big dog. I'm the Messiah. I'm your everything. And here's why they're going to show up in that time, because people are rattled. I'm telling you, people in general are panicky, but the church is super panicky. Man, we are the most skittish crew. Anything that happens, we're like, oh my gosh, what was that? You know? And you're like, dude, it was nothing. I was, what are you talking about? Oh my God, there's another one. You know, and you're, okay, calm down, man. Why are you freaking out? We're so skittish because we read stuff like this. We're reading stuff that's like, it's the end of the world. Man, all the emails I got, everything that happens in the world. I get an email on, it's the end of the world, dude. I'm just telling you right now. I mean, I'm the only one that knows it, but seriously. It's the end of the world. It is the end of the world that Panera opened a new store. Is that what you're telling me? 
Yeah, man, that's one of the signs of the apocalypse. That's what I'm telling you, right? You know, come on, right? But, but what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'm going to tell you how this thing's going to go down. But what I don't want you to do is allow other people to come in and go, yeah, 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 I'm the big guy. You just follow everything I say. Forget about all that other stuff. It's all about me. You go, okay, that's not right. Then he says this. When you hear wars and rumors of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Why? Because God knows what he's doing. See that you are not alarmed. Why? Because he's still in control. Besides, these things must first take place, but the end is not yet. The end will not be at once. So right off the bat, he's clearing with the guys. Guys, when the temple gets destroyed, you're going to freak out. You're going to think it's the end of the world. It's not. As a matter of fact, there's a big old gap there. Now, they had no idea of how long that would be. Here we are 2,000 years later going, uh, any time, you know, right? I mean, that's a long gap. They didn't know that. Then he said to them, guys, let me be honest with you. Nation's going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, like always. That's been going on since the dawn of creation. There will be great earthquakes in various places. In various places, there's famines and pestilences. Yeah, there's going to be terrors and great signs from heaven. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. So a lot of people read in prophecy and they're like, oh my gosh, there's this war in the Middle East and it's the end. He's like, there have been wars in the Middle East for as long as there was a Middle East. It's like, yeah, of course there's wars. There's always going to be wars. Okay, so how do we look at this? Is he talking about that's the stuff that's going to be at the end of the world or is he saying that's the stuff that's going to happen before the temple is destroyed what do you think the answer is the answer is yes here's how biblical prophecy tends to be fulfilled it tends to be fulfilled in a spiral or a vortex and what it means is it starts out with an immediate something that the prophet would understand. He'd kind of be like, okay, I understand that. That's going to happen in my lifetime. But it's not the ultimate fulfillment. Then it comes all the way around and then another thing hits and you go, dang, that looks just like it. It is. And then it gets closer. Oh man, that looks like it too. It is. And then it gets down to the very last one that's super intense and you're like, that's it. And he's like, yeah. Okay, because it keeps getting fulfilled closer and closer and closer. Let me give you an example that happened in not too... Uh, not too far history from us. There is no one in recent history that looks more like the Antichrist than Hitler. Yeah? If we're all alive during Hitler, are we not going to assume he's the Antichrist? Come on. The guy that wants to destroy Jews worldwide and is completely hell-bent on doing so with all kinds of messed up ways of doing that. And that's not the Antichrist? What's the Antichrist going to be? But Jesus said there are many Antichrists. It's, 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 it's. This is a very, it's a very hard word to say. There are many. You can say it to yourself just quietly. There are many of them. And, that, and Hitler was one of them. So is he like the Antichrist? Yes. And then it goes around. What about this guy? Yeah. And it keeps spiraling in. But there is one that's going to come. And he's going to be more accurate and more intense than all the rest of them. And you go, whoa, but understand the fulfillment. That's why prophecy is very hard to track on because you're going, so they mean then or they mean now? And God says, yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, all that stuff's going to happen before the destruction of the temple. Oh, and all that stuff's going to happen just more intensely before I come. That's what it actually means. So he said this. 
Be on your guard, but don't be on your guard for the end of the world. There's nothing you can do about the end of the world. What, how are you supposed to be on your guard? Man, I swear the end of the world's coming. I'm ready. What are you, what are you going to do? You're going to be ready for what? Ready for an earthquake? Is that what you're going to be ready for? Come on. No, you're supposed to be ready in this area. Be on your guard for before all this temple destruction stuff and the end of the world, there's going to be persecution. That's what you need to be ready for. Okay, that's where you prep your heart. You know the Bible. You know what's going on. You're locked in with fellowship. You're locked in, right? That you know your identity in Jesus. That's actually what's critical. That's something you can prep for. You can't prep for the end of the world, but you can prep for persecution. He said, for before all this happens, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you. Did he mean the disciples or did he mean future believers? Uh Uh-huh. Sure did. Were the disciples persecuted? Absolutely. Will the end times believers be persecuted? Absolutely. And they will deliver you over to councils or Sanhedrins as heretics. You will be beaten in synagogues and prisons. And they would do that beating with 39 lashes, right? Whips. And they would do 13 on your chest and 26 on your back. He said, you will be brought to stand before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Okay. Before the end of the world or before the temple destroyed? Yes. Because I want you to walk through that with me. Did that happen to the disciples? Were they killed for their faith? All but John. Were they brought before councils and kings? Yes, they were. All this stuff happened. And why? Why is there persecution? Why would God look like he's allowing the bad guys to win? I mean, it always seems like, oh man, we're losing. Hold on. No, we're not. Persecution is purposeful. It's not an accident. It's not the bad guys winning. It's not, oh no, we're losing. It is God's plan. And persecution is purposeful because it leads to proclamation. Think about it this way. Let's say the early fledgling church, they really want the government to be transformed. They really want Christianity to go worldwide. And so they ask for a meeting with Caesar. You think he's going to be like, dang, I don't got nothing on my calendar. Sure, I'd love to learn about Jesus. No, there's no way. So how are they going to get a meeting? Well, I don't know. Jesus gets them a personal invitation. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, you're going to die. Get over here. God gives them little bracelets and everything, right? They end up showing up before the kings and everything's more intense. Everything's more personal. Everything is locked and loaded. And in that moment, Christ is proclaimed to the highest places they would never get into. Persecution is purposeful. It's not an accident. We're not losing. If you knew that you were going to win a ping pong table tennis match, You knew it in advance, and yet the other guy was up 11 to 10. Are you worried about it? No, come on. It doesn't even matter what goes on in the process. You already win, and that's the way it is with God. All right, let's finish this out. It says, and when they bring you to trial, when they deliver you over, and they will, do not be anxious about what you're going to say beforehand. He's like, guys, don't think you're going to let me down. Oh man, I'm going to tell you to get arrested and I'm not going to know what to say. And they'd be like, why are you a Christian? I'm like, uh, 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 I don't know. I forgot to memorize in Sunday school. 
right? He's like, don't worry about that. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer because it's not going to be your wisdom. But say whatever is given to you in that hour for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit supernaturally, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Man, if you talk, they're going to be like, that's dumb. When the Holy Spirit talks, they're like, uh, I don't even know what to do with that. That's, that's weird. But when things get hard, what happens? Then many will fall away. Why? They can't take the heat. They will betray one another. They'll hate each other. Why? Because when things get tense, we eat each other alive. And many false prophets will arise and lead other people astray. That's an opportunity for a bad guy. And because lawlessness will be increased, meaning things will get worse and less like God, the love of many will grow cold. Okay, this is what Bishop Parnell, I believe, shared with you. When things get bad, we get bitter. And when we get bitter, we lose the hallmark of a Christian, which is love. You cannot allow the bad stuff to wreck your heart and ruin you as a Christian. I understand it's not going the way you want it. I understand that things are messed up. I understand that even in persecution and all this other thing. But if you lock down and just get angry, we've already lost. That can't be how it goes. And then he says this, and you will be delivered up in tribulation. In difficult situations, even by your relatives and friends, people you thought you could rely on, and brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, children will rise against parents, and some of you they'll put to death, but you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The world doesn't like me. And the more you're like me, they don't like you. Now, if they don't like you because you're a jerk, that's fine. But if they don't like you because you're like Jesus, count that glory. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay. The whole nation will be, the whole, all nations will be proclaimed the gospel before the temple's destroyed or before the end times. Yes. And you go, well, come on, dude, that's not real. How is that possible? Three times Paul records that the gospel had gone to the entire world. That was his quote by the time of his death. He died before all that stuff went down. How is that possible? Because when they say the whole world, they mean the Mediterranean world. For example, when Agabus the prophet came up before the guys in Acts, he said there will be a famine over the entire world. And yet it was only a Mediterranean famine. Over and over and over, you begin to see that their view of the world is much smaller than our view of the world. But isn't that a partial prophecy that ultimately will be fulfilled when the gospel goes over the entire planet and then Jesus returns? Oh. Here's what I need you to understand. It says, he who endures to the end will be saved. There are some of you, when we talk about this stuff, you're scaredy cats like me. I don't know who's in my scaredy cat crew, right? Where you're just like, it's the end of the world. Oh my gosh, 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 right? And you're like, there's still stuff I haven't done. I never got to the next level of my video game. <laughs> I never got married. I never got that. Okay, hold on, hold on. There's some of us that are all scared and they're like, I'm going to crack. I'm seriously, I'm going to crack. Man, if they put a gun to my head, I'm going to crack. I'll tell you right now, Jesus, you better not have them put a gun to my head because I will crack. I'm telling you right now, I will cave on you. Okay, because you're looking at yourself going, I'm never going to make it, I'm never going to make it. Hold on. I need you to hear three verses as we close. 
John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never die. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of his hand. Hold up. Who's rescuing who? Who's in charge of your endurance to the end? Who's the one that is going to make sure his kids get home? Who's the one that knows you're going to crack? That's Jesus. He knows all that. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, he said, I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God is faithful. And then we all know Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, he said, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Amen? Amen. Why, I know all this stuff sounds crazy and scary. And what about this? And what about that? And oh my gosh, what's going to happen in here? Stop. Do not be terrified. I need you to understand that if indeed it comes down to a time where you're going to be like the disciples or like the apostles, where you are going to be martyred for your faith, I need you to remember the boldness in Peter. He even said, according to tradition, he said, dude, hang me upside down. I'm not even worthy to get hung up right side up. Meaning that his boldness and his strength and you read through Fox's book of martyrs and these people had an empowerment and an encouragement because they had a strong calling. So they had a strong enabling. If we are merely just walking through day to day doing Walmart stuff, we don't need that type of boldness. But if we are head to head with kings and we are being persecuted for our faith, God will meet us there because he is the one that is interested in getting us home. He's the one interested in the proclamation of the gospel. He is the one who began this whole thing. So he will watch over his kids. He will protect his kids and he will get them home. Doesn't mean that we're not going to die. It just means that that's not a big deal. It doesn't mean that things aren't going to be hard. It just means that's not the end of the story. And I want all of you little scaredy cats that when we're talking about this stuff, I want you to remember this over and over and over that your dad's bigger than the bad guys. And I want you to remember that he knows how to get his kids where he needs to get his kids. And I know that he can change your heart in courage and strength and power and ferocity when he needs to. And so just know this, your dad knows what he's doing. He's really good at this stuff. And he's got it all mapped out. It's not an accident. It's not random. And no, the bad guys aren't winning. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your encouragement. Thank you, Jesus, that you laid this stuff out so that we wouldn't kind of get lost or messed up by people. And, and, and Lord, we're just going to adhere to you. We're just going to love you and we're going to walk with you and we're going to try to keep our hearts soft. But God, some of us, we're kind of messed up right now. We're in a rough place and we need more of you in our situation. We need more of the cross. We need more of the gospel. And so, Lord, come in and be with us. Lord, we need a different perspective. We need, I don't know, maybe our head needs to get re-racked. Or, or maybe, Lord, you actually need to change a situation. God, you're able to do that. So in advance, we praise you for what outcome that is going to happen. Lord, even if it looks like it's going backwards to us, you know how to get us home. And so we praise you in the good times. 
We praise you in the bad times, for you are great and wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.